This podcast is sponsored by Sound Critical Care, the employer of choice for critical care physicians, where we promote physician autonomy, mastery, and purpose. At Sound Critical Care, we ensure physicians have the time and resources needed to deliver compassionate care that measurably improves quality and lowers the cost of health care for patients in the communities we serve. For more information, please visit soundphysicians.com. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's I Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Infield. There is a growing recognition for the need to engage palliative care for the management of pain, agitation, and delirium in critically ill patients. However, the timing of such interventions is unclear, as are the benefits to patients for earlier intervention. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Marin Kolif, MD, to discuss the recent published article on early palliative care consultation in the medical ICU, a cluster-randomized crossover trial, which aimed to answer these questions. To access the full article, visit ccmjournal.org. Dr. Marin Kolif is a professor of medicine at Washington University of Medicine and has no disclosures for this podcast. Dr. Kolif, what was it that you and your collaborators were hoping to answer with this study? What was the uh, the idea that kind of prompted you to choose to do this study, and, and how did you approach designing it? Yeah, we wanted to come up with a practical study design. You know, obviously, one can carry out a randomized control trial, but there are certain limitations with using that type of a study design. And we really wanted to determine whether or not having a automatic palliative care consult from an academic palliative care service could really improve upon, you know, some objective measures when it came to patients in the ICU setting, including things like documentation of patient preferences, uh, you know, end-of-life preferences, transition to certain levels of care such as do not intubate, do not resuscitate, uh, and the utilization of hospice services. So that was really what we were trying to do. And and the design that we came up with after thinking about this for a while and talking to some very good statisticians that we had access to was really a crossover design within our medical intensive care unit population. Uh, The crossover design essentially being a type of a cluster randomized trial involving two separate ICUs. So when you were thinking about the sort of automatic triggers, those have uh, challenged people in the past. What trigger did you all end up deciding on and what sort of prompted you to use that trigger for your automatic triggers to bring the palliative care consults in? Yeah, I I mean, we wanted to select triggers that have already been published, which we went ahead and did. You know, these are triggers that are fairly straightforward, I think, in terms of being easily identifiable. They, They identify things such as end organ dysfunction good example would be patients with cirrhosis. So we, we wanted to do it in a way where it could be done systematically. You know, th- these were very clear objective measures that could be done. So that, that was really, and we wanted them to be simple and straightforward. Did you have any experiences uh, with pushback from attending physicians within your ICU or uh, family members in the rollout of this study? Not at all. And a lot of that let me preface this by saying that our medical ICUs in a large academic medical center are closed units where the critical care team uh, is really responsible for all aspects of the patient's care. Having said that, uh, you know, we do have patients who come in from transplant services, from oncology services. You know, we made it known through the medical center that we were conducting this study, uh, but we really had no issues and no pushback. Now, 
We also have a separate oncology ICU slash BMT ICU. So many, if not most of those types of patients end up in that particular unit. And so I have to say that the population that we looked at was a more general medical ICU population, uh, including solid organ transplant patients. And, uh, you know, we did have some exclusions, which included transplant patients, in part because we wanted to demonstrate first and foremost that we could do this and that it worked, and then potentially take it out to other ICUs within the hospital, within our medical system, and maybe some of these other patient types. But if I had to say if there was a particular patient population that was somewhat underrepresented in our cohort, it was probably uh, BMT, uh, primarily because they have a separate unit. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And and that was one of the key questions I had is, is that it seemed like uh, the bone marrow transplant population was a, a bit small in your sample compared to other ICUs that I'm familiar with. So um, that separate BMT unit probably did influence things. Did the transplant physicians, uh, were they fairly receptive to this concept? I have to say that uh, our transplant doctors are obviously quite good, just like in any center. And I have found them to be very reasonable when it comes to end-of-life issues uh, in general. I think part of the problem is, um, and, and, and we're all pressed for time, and, and sometimes it's easier just to let things sort of take a more natural course, which you know may or may not be ideal, both for the patients and their family members. But I think that sometimes palliative care and end of life is delayed in not just in the transplant population, but in the general population. And despite the fact that our intensivist group, you know, we all felt that we were doing a reasonable job with palliative care. We recognized, uh, and, and this may have to do with the fact that, you know, each of our intensivists, at least in the medical ICUs, is managing 17 patients on a daily basis, that we may not have enough time to really focus as much as we should be on these kinds of things. So I think that, you know, that's true for all physicians and having a separate palliative care group, if you will, where that's their only mission, I think can be helpful, even in situations where the clinicians already feel they're doing a good job because, you know, there, there's no good measure of that. There's, there's no real good way to say, yeah, you know, we're doing a great job with palliative care when in fact, it's a very difficult thing to assess. And that's why we, in large part, carried out this study. One of the findings that struck me when I was reading through your article was uh, the reduction in ventilator-free days and the rate of discharge to hospice that was higher in your intervention group. The latter, you know, makes a lot of sense with early palliative care consultation, but why do you think that there was a a reduction in ventilator-free days in that cohort as well? Well, I think there are a couple of issues there. Number one, you know, When a patient transitions to a different level of care, sometimes we might be a little more comfortable in just, you know, liberating them from the ventilator, recognizing that we're not going to reintubate them. And so that may have some impact on, you know, how we look at patients on mechanical ventilation. So, and I know that's certainly true in my own practice. You know, I I might have someone who's marginal when it comes to their weaning uh, criteria, Uh, Yet, if I know I'm not going to intubate them and I know that their family and their wishes through their surrogates are that they really would not want to be continued on, you know, these types of life-sustaining measures, I'm going to be more aggressive, if you will, about taking them off life support, which includes mechanical ventilation. 
Now, I think one of the important aspects of this is that just because they're liberated from the ventilator doesn't mean that they're going to succumb to their illness right away. So I, I think that probably accounts for a lot of why we saw more ventilator-free days in this population. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, it makes me question sometimes, too, if uh, if in our general population, if we're aggressive enough, if we're seeing uh, that in, a, a popula- in this population uh, with liberation. Uh, is there anything that really surprised you with this study that when you were conducting it, you were not expecting to find, but uh, as you conducted the study, you, you found something that really stood out to you? Yeah, I, I think the thing that really stood out to me was how easy it was to do this and how well it worked. And what I mean by that, the integration of bringing in, you know, the palliative care consults, if you will, into the ICU. You know, I think there was a little, you know, we would all have a little bit of uh, hesitancy, if you will, whenever other clinicians are coming into the unit. I, I, but in this particular case, you know, it was amazing how well it worked. And I think a lot of that just has to do with the personalities that are involved here. We're comfortable with each other. You know, we know each other. Um, we communicated very well. And I think that was probably the most important aspect of this. The fact that, you know, when these consultations were done, you know, members of the palliative care team, you know, communicated with the ICU team. Uh, and I think that really made all the difference in the world. And, and I think, you know, we were all very surprised at just how easy it was to do this. With the, the ease of it and the findings that you have, has this uh, practice actually changed in your ICU and have you implemented this in a more broad scale? Or do you feel that we need more research to further define when uh, the intervention should be timed? No, I think for us, you know, we're looking at expanding this into other ICUs. Uh, the main limitation that we have and we're addressing this right now is just having enough palliative care clinicians. We actually now have a palliative care fellowship, uh, which uh, is about two years old. And, and I'm very happy to say that. And, and, and I think that we're going to see that expand as well. And the hope would be that over time, you know, this can become a more routine practice in all the intensive care units uh, throughout our system, not just in the academic hospital. And if as you look to implementing this uh, at other places, what do you think the keys for uh, another health system or another hospital to rolling out such a practice? You already mentioned one, the number of palliative care attendings you had to provide the service, but are there other key factors that people should be looking at when they think about implementing such a project? Sure. I, I think that sometimes, you know, without getting into specifics, certain types of clinicians sort of look at palliative care in, in a little bit of a negative manner. But I think it's really important to embrace this for its importance. And, and I think it's really important to have individuals involved who are really expert in what they're doing, not just in addressing end-of-life issues, but also being able to bring expertise in terms of comfort measures for patients, ways of dealing with family stresses, that sort of thing. And at least for us, that meant that the palliative care team was really multidisciplinary as it was for the ICU team. They have within their ranks uh, clergy individuals, uh, they have social workers, uh, they have nurses. So that multidisciplinary approach, I think, was very helpful. But I think the key thing is having individuals involved who are willing to communicate well with the ICU team. And for us, you know, that was very clear. And I think that from the beginning, if this is going to be applied in another institution, 
it's real important to get those stakeholders together, get them talking to each other, and really to have them all understand, you know, what the main goal here. And the main goal is really to do what's best for patients and their families. And, and very often that means, you know, transitioning them from very aggressive measures to something that's less than that. Out of curiosity, were you able to get any sense of the nursing team's response to this intervention? We did. And in fact, uh, there was a very positive response from the nursing staff. I mean, many of our ICU nurses already have that sort of, I mean, yes, they're interested in providing critical care. They, they like the environment of the ICU, but they also are very good at recognizing when things are not going to go well and when we probably should be scaling back. And very often, you know, they're the ones who will come to me and say, hey, you know, Dr. Colliff, do you think, you know, we should maybe be heading in a different direction? So, you know, I think there was very good acceptance from the nursing staff in terms of the palliative care evaluations. I guess one of the final questions I have with you is, is you know, as you look through this project and, and your experience and your tenure as a critical care physician, what are three real big takeaways for the, the novice intensivist or the intensivist in training that you would share? Yeah, I mean, I think three of the main takeaways are, number one, you know, we have to recognize that uh, at least in my ICU, and, and it may be similar in most other ICUs, death is one of our most common diagnoses, if you will. I mean, about 30% of all the patients I care for in the medical ICUs will eventually succumb to their illness. So we need to have good ways and better ways of managing that and, and, and really, you know, bringing those patients uh, towards that final part of their journey. I think the second takeaway is that, you know, one has to one has to accept palliative care as a real specialty and to look at those colleagues as, you know, the same way we would look at our nephrologists or our infectious disease consultants and that they're there to provide an important service and they're really there to help not just the patients, but very often the family members and really the ICU staffs, because very often we can get into some difficult discussions and, and sometimes even ICU attendings may get uncomfortable with specific circumstances so that the palliative care expert can you know step in there and, and really assist us in that regard. And I think the third takeaway would be that, you know, we really need to do what's right. And, and sometimes, you know, and, and I hate to admit this, you know, as an intensivist, uh, you, you know, you're off doing procedures, you're, you're dealing with those life and death matters. And, and sometimes, you know, the, the end of life, if you will, or the palliative care issue, or, you know, comfort issues related to patients and their families may sort of take a back step. And I think recognizing that and, and trying to come up for, for better solutions for managing that as we do for weaning patients on the ventilator or resuscitating patients in shock, I think that's just as important. Yeah, I think that last takeaway point is probably one of the, the hardest lessons that we can teach and uh, also one of the most important to learn. So thank you for sharing that. I want to also say thank you because I think this is one of the more exciting articles that I've read in a little while to address what I think is becoming a, a very complex issue for us, which is uh, getting uh, patients the care for their pain and agitation, as well as helping the family out while recognizing that we also have a lot of other things on our plate at the same time. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today and for working on this article with you and your, your colleagues. And this will conclude another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Kyle Enfield. Kyle Enfield, MD. 
Kyle Enfield, M.D., is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug-resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. This podcast is sponsored by Sound Critical Care, the employer of choice for critical care physicians, where we promote physician autonomy, mastery, and purpose. At Sound Critical Care, we ensure physicians have the time and resources needed to deliver compassionate care that measurably improves quality and lowers the cost of health care for patients in the communities we serve. For more information, please visit soundphysicians.com. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.